So let's welcome Keith and Jim for my damage. And he's going to do all the talking. So I was born in New York in 1968. No. And what was the name of the hospital? There's actually going to be. Uh, Hopefully, most you're going to do most. Were of you the born in? Geez. Were you born in back there? I was. Okay. Yeah. I thought maybe you were just starting a joke. Or well, I was. Keith was actually born less than a mile from here, right? Um, if you were a uh, great right fielder with a rocket for an arm, you could probably hit the right aid from here, which is right across the parking lot from Kaiser. The birthplace of Keith Morris in 1955. Is that right? That's right. I'm terrible at math. That's why, why we do the book thing. So I have uh, coerced Keith into reading a section from near the beginning where he talks um, about some early shows that he saw and how that went over with his family and that's a great launch pad for some of the discussions that we're going to have tonight. The first big concert I attended was at the Los Angeles Forum in Inglewood. Actually it was my 15th birthday. <clears throat> I went with my cousin, my next youngest cousin, who was also born on my birthday. <clears throat> And one of my friends who was a twin, and um, there, w there wasn't enough money to buy enough tickets for everybody to go. There would have been oh, no. probably six or seven of us. Um, we ended up going to the forum, and at that time there was a, a curfew. And being 15 years old, I wasn't old enough to stay out past the curfew, so we walked two miles through Inglewood. And luckily at the time... Um, well, first off, we saw Steppenwolf perform Monster, which was pretty amazing, and Three Dog Night, who were, they were good, they had a couple of hits on the radio, and The Grassroots, who also had a couple of hits on the radio. It was all good. I mean, we're young kids, we're just excited to see what was going on and check it out. Um, be in the forum, never been in the forum before. So uh, <clears throat> that was the, I guess, the start of my downhill slide. <laughs> yes, it's, it's been uh, zero for conduct since Steppenwolf performing Monster at the Forum. <laughs> so now I'm just, uh, this, is this something that I'm supposed to get used to, just like reading directly from the book? Well, we know that, you, that you're incapable of that, so... Just, let's just proceed with uh, the second paragraph. Hey, Ben. Uh, ben, are you in the crowd? Okay. Um, we're uh, going to point out the publisher. And, <clears throat> yeah. We're just, <laughs> thank you. Ben Schaefer, the cop of books right here. <laughs> no, and just to, just to advertise a couple of things, we also have a Steve Jones book in the works, and um, a good friend of mine, a gentleman named Wayne Kramer, is also, I guess, Ben is starting his own, um, like, LAX, where all the jets are waiting to take off. 
Um, <clears throat> so I'm supposed to get used to reading from the book. Uh, d does Henry Rollins read directly <laughs> from a book? Because I'm, when I grow up, I want to be just like Henry Rollins. Um, I'm going to start lifting weights, and I'm going to start hanging out with Glenn Danzig. Or he memorizes his books. Okay, okay. I was walking across the beach, and I was playing with my navel. I remember that. Yeah. That was a line out of one of his books. <laughs> uh, we'll, we, maybe we'll get around to some more Henry Rollinisms later on. Okay, after that first experience of seeing live music, I was hooked. And I witnessed some unbelievable performances that had lasting impact on me. When I was 17, I saw Iggy and the Stooges on the Raw Power Tool <laughs> raw power tool. Yeah, that's another place in the book. <laughs> that's tour. Tour. Yeah, that's, yeah. You don't when you get in a van and you go play night after night. It's not a tool. It's a tour. And all the yeah. lights are off. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that was the record that David Bowie produced. A lot of people think what a horrible job. Uh, my. Um, argument for how amazing that record is and how cruddy it sounds is that it's a rock record and who gives a fuck? Because the songs are amazing. Um, with James Williamson, James Williamson standing out in front of the Whiskey-A-Go-Go at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday dressed like a vampire in all of his leather like, what are you thinking, man? What, what, it's 98 degrees out. But the, 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 the show was, like, insane. Um, what happened was Iggy came down. Uh, when you're at the Whiskey A Go-Go, there's stairs to get to the stage. He comes down. He's wearing a pair of pants. That's all he's wearing, just a pair of bell bottoms. That's it. Nothing else. The first thing he does is he walks over to the bucket of the, the the bucket where you're supposed to put the beers in with all of the ice, and all of the ice is completely melted. And he dumps it on himself, and it's like, my God, man! All it takes is for one of these cords to come unplugged from a guitar, and you're gonna get blasted through the roof. But the, sh the show was amazing. I mean, it was, this was the first set, and this was at a time when the bands would show up and they would play two sets. And they had to, at the end of the set, the, the guys that were in charge of the stage and the one guitar tech or whoever had to carry him back up the stairs by his arms and his legs. I mean, he was just, he was a sponge. It was amazing. Oh, that's like that, there's that um, <clears throat> advertisement before they show the movie where the woman's phone starts ringing and this woman's like doing a vocal thing. It's like everybody looks, how, hey, come on now. Is that you, Perry? Yes, it is. Okay. 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 We'll, 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 we'll let it go. Sorry for pointing you out. Okay. <laughs> No shirt, no socks, no shoes. 
and he dumped that bucket of ice cold water on his head. He was standing barefoot on stage with all these live wires running everywhere. All he had to do was grab the mic the wrong way and he would have been blasted through the roof. The band, the band sounded amazing, even though they were just a couple of weeks away from breaking up. Uh, you have to understand when that record came out, one of the greatest rock records to ever be recorded, that record label didn't give a fuck. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, I, we're not supposed to talk like that. No, it's all right, it's my daughter, she's heard it all before. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, speaking of Bowie, I saw the Ziggy Stardust tour in 1972 with Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder, and Mick Woody Woodmansey a.k.a. the spiders from Mars. I was in the seventh row with a nugget of hashish in my pocket. <laughs> like, <laughs> primo. Yeah, dermo. An unbelievable show. Just mind-bogglingly genius. Don't take my word for it. There's a live album in that show called Santa Monica 72. <clears throat> um, around this time... I also saw the Kinks for the first time at the Hollywood Palladium. And the Davies brothers, who were notoriously famous for um, getting in fights and all of that stuff, got into a fight, thought it was a one-sided affair. Ray just hauled off and sucker-punched Dave and knocked him down. Dave kept playing his guitar until a pair of roadies came out to lift him up. Dave just shrugged it off like all he wanted to do was lie there in his misery and play guitar. Ray had some kind of breakdown not too long after the show. Now the scene um, at the Hollywood Palladium on that stage, there's a uh, little episode in Spinal Tap <laughs> where the roadies try to come to the bass player's rescue, and it just turns into this comedy of errors, and that's pretty much what it was. I mean, I was just blown away. Uh, I believe this was the Muswell Hillbillies tour. <clears throat> My friends and I loved to see live music, but couldn't always afford to go, so I got really good at sneaking into places. That one advantage to being short, I was able to sneak into places I didn't belong. One night I snuck into the dressing room at the Starwood when the Runaways were doing a photo shoot with Led Zeppelin. I was able to sneak past the guy at the door and finagle my way in. However, my first brush with rock and roll superstardom didn't work out so well. In fact, it ended pretty abruptly when Kim Fowley, one of the most hated men in the music business, spotted me. Get him out of here, he shouted. A bouncer picked me up off my feet, threw me against the wall. When I slumped to the ground, he grabbed me by the neck, lifted me up by my belt loop, and tossed me out the door like a piece of garbage. I was a little groggy from my crash landing and all the beer I'd been drinking that day, but when I lifted my head up, there was a hand reaching down to help me up. I grabbed the hand, got to my feet, and found myself standing in front of a man with long blonde hair and platform shoes, dressed in some outrageous glam costume. I recognized him immediately, Arthur Killer Kane of the New York Dolls. <laughs> I hate that motherfucking Kim Fowley, that motherfucker, he growled. <laughs> Killer Kane made a big impression on me. Here he was, a bona fide rock star, but he wasn't too big to lend a helping hand to a scrawny kid. Although the lesson to be learned from the whole experience was, obviously, 
don't fuck around in someone else's dressing room. <laughs> that episode planted a seed with the respect to how to be decent, be a decent human being. If I ever got famous, I wouldn't be like Kim Fowley and step on people just because I could. I'd be like Arthur Killer Kane. Oh, this is, I, I like this part. <laughs> this is about the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, we, we had a situation where we had discovered a way to be able to get into the Hollywood Bowl for free without having to come back down over the hills through all of the bushes and the trees where at that time the security people were called uh, West Security, I believe it was. They would wear, they would wear uh, UCLA Bruin colors, yellow jackets with blue lettering, and they would get up in the trees and their favorite thing was to carry pipes around with them, brass knuckles. And when people would come over the hills to see a show for free at the Hollywood Bowl, they would end up being hospitalized. But we had figured out a way to, there's a ticket booth when you first start to walk in, before you enter the Hollywood Bowl, where you would go to get your tickets, next to the ticket booth was a little drainage ditch. And the fence ran the, right up above the ground level. So there was this hole that was perfect for me. I'm just <laughs> right in there. My friends, uh, it was a little bit difficult for them, but the great thing was it would let you into the first 20 rows at the Hollywood, at the Hollywood Bowl in the bushes. So if you wanted to sit in the bushes, you could watch the show from maybe from here to across the street. And we saw some really amazing shows. Over the course of about three or four summers, we saw the Allman Brothers. We saw Procol Harum and Pink Floyd. And unfortunately, we saw Seals and Crofts and Kenny Loggins and Messina. <laughs> um, we did see... Uh, and this, this isn't very punk rock and not very cool amongst that group of people, the Grateful Dead. And this was actually, I'm very fortunate to have seen the Grateful Dead twice. I'm not a big fan, but I do own these two records, and these were the two tours that I saw the Grateful Dead on. Uh, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. And many of the Grateful Dead fanatics will say those are possibly their two best albums. So I feel fortunate to have been able to see them on those tours. Now the first time I saw the Grateful Dead was at the Hollywood Palladium and that's the first time I ever experienced the Hollywood Palladium and that was also the first time I ever experienced elephant tranquilizer mixed with just cheap red wine, the cheapest <laughs> headache for six weeks red wine and I stood in the middle of the floor at the Hollywood Palladium for about six hours I did not move <laughs> and right around the, the end of the sixth hour I decided to, I, that I had to go to the bathroom and that I wanted to just walk around and see what the 
rest of the Hollywood Palladium looked like. And upstairs, this was when the Grateful Dead would do one of their four to five hour long marathons. So the people that I went with were the hippies that lived four houses down, four, door, four doors down from where I lived. And they were the ones that uh, turned me on to the Boda bag with the wine and elephant tranquilizer. We, we had a friend that worked up here at the LA Zoo that was swiping drugs that he, he would sell to us and it looked like cocaine or crystal meth or something like that and it was pretty exciting actually. If you like that story, there are no less than six chapters about the Grateful Dead in My Damage. Uh, no, I'm just because they're my favorite. How about these uh, last two, and then we'll. Uh, okay. Um, when I had, um, oh, this is one of his favorite stories, and um, I was talking with Wayne Kramer um, a couple of days ago on the phone because Ben's got a Wayne Kramer book in the works with Jim. No. You're not going to work on that. No. I thought you were going to work on that. Not that I know about. <laughs> Maybe in the works. Because, because, because Wayne read the book and said, I'm working with Ben and Jim. And I said, That's, you're, you're not going to work with a couple of greater guys, so oh. be prepared. I'm sorry that I pulled the rug out or, you know. Well, <laughs> so be prepared. Can I have Wayne's number after the show? Yeah. <laughs> I can give you his email address. Okay. <laughs> you read out of these last two. Okay. But um, getting back to Wayne Kramer, I said there was a, uh, an acknowledgement. Uh, um, I um, rattle off a list of uh, ex-girlfriends, and one of them happened to... He said, you can't put this in the book because it makes you look sexist. It makes you look like a fucking chauvinist pig. And... I don't really care about being correct anymore. I'm 61 years old, and I could just really give a fuck. But I'll try to be as good as I can. That's, that's, the, that's the rule. Be, just be good. Okay, so um, getting back to Wayne Kramer and this part that Jim, I allowed Jim to, because he's such a great guy and he said so many great things, I said, Jim, if you don't want to put it in the book, don't put it in the book. I, I'm not going to argue with you anymore. I think that's like the only thing we disagreed about was like some crappy line in the acknowledgement section. Um, that and um, there's a story where I use the word nigger, oh, yeah. which makes me look like a racist. Well, that's in the book. And <laughs> No, um, that's in the book. And um, that actually saved my life. So. In a bus full of gang members. Oh, you must be crazy. We're not going to mess with you. <laughs> so I tell Wayne the story about um, how I acknowledge all of my ex-girlfriends. And one of them happened to um, turn my dad on to the fact that I'm going to read this story. And then I'll tell you uh, about the girlfriend. Okay. When, I was a, when I was a teenager, I had posters of all my favorite musicians on my bedroom walls. David Bowie, Mark Bolin, Edgar Winters, they only come out at night. See, if you remember that album cover, he looks very uh, feminine because his, he allowed his girlfriend 
to put makeup on them for the album shoot. Okay, and the first Kiss album. Okay, um, you got to have a Kiss album poster on the wall, otherwise you don't count, I guess. My dad didn't really know what to make of it. One time he came into my room while I was listening to music and looked at all the posters and said, you're a fag, aren't you? <laughs> that was one of our many lopsided conversations. <laughs> An actual one-sided conversation. I think it was hard for him because he liked music too, but jazz was his genre of choice. To him it was this exciting, creative thing and he just didn't understand the appeal of these strange-looking, gender-bending rock stars. To him, they were all a bunch of queers. It wasn't just the way the bands looked. He had a genuine dislike for the music. The harder the music, the more he disliked it. One afternoon, I was listening to Sham 69. He came into my room and said, I'm going to a jazz festival today, and they won't be playing any of this shit. <laughs> Okay, Dad, you do your thing, I'll do mine. Uh, getting back to the uh, part that Jim trimmed, um, the uh, friend happened to decide that she was going to sleep downstairs one night and decided that she was going to sleep in the nude in the middle of summertime, so when you live at the beach... Uh, it's like 90 degrees out, so not only did she sleep in the nude, but she didn't even bother to cover herself in any of the blankets. And she's laying there. My dad comes down at about 6 a.m. to take a shower, and there she is. And he said, you know what? I don't think you're a fag. <laughs> <laughs> I had a similar uh, situation with my dad, except the band in question was the Village People. <laughs> and being a, I had a poster on the wall, and being like a kid, I, I didn't really understand that the Village People was, a, you know, what, there were some coded references there that were about nine miles. Had you, miles had you even bothered head. to listen to their music? No, I liked the music. All, okay. All, have you listened to their first album? Have you, Keith? Okay, then. Someone's got some homework to do. Yeah, several dozen times. <laughs> so um, we also want to talk about uh, tonight some of, uh, some of our heroes who get referenced quite a bit in this book. And I think there's no better place to start than with Brendan Mullen, who I think is maybe is, is the most important person in the L.A. punk scene, or if not one of the most. Well, the we most, could point yeah. the finger at him and say that he's responsible because he did open the clubhouse where everybody hung out and all of the bands would come and play. Right, I mean, and it may not have, I mean, he was, he was a musician, but like that impact came a lot later. But, um, but Brendan played an important role, just you and Brendan, their careers kept intersecting uh, many times. Everybody well, knows who Brendan Mullen is, right? Um, anybody... That doesn't know who Brendan Mullen is, that's okay. I mean, you know, we we can't absorb all of it. Brendan was my friend. He ran a place called The Mask, which uh, during the day was a place where um, the bands would gather to rehearse. And it was under the Pussycat Theater up here on Hollywood Boulevard, uh, right in the epicenter, right in the middle of Hollywood. And the space basically was 
a bomb shelter. It was indestructible. All sorts of graffiti. I remember seeing just some of the greatest shows that I've ever seen, like the Weirdos and Dickies, the Germs, and the the crowd was always uh, a, actually a good mix of people. And the, the scene, the the uh, early. L.A. punk scene was very cliquish. It was like, well, it belongs to us, and we know each other, and, uh, well, you're from the Valley, and you don't really look like you belong here, and, you know, our thing was black. When I, when I say our thing at that time, I was a, a member of Black Flag, and we all looked like roadies for Peter Frampton, or, <laughs> you know, and I kept saying the Grateful Dead like we just got stoned and fell out of the Volkswagen van in the parking lot at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, so we didn't fit in, but eventually um, we had a, um, a night where we were welcomed wholeheartedly. And that is, we were up, up here on um, Fountain over past La Brea at a uh, after hours party, somebody's space. Uh, they're playing different music, you know, local bands, all sorts of stuff. And <clears throat> there was a there was a break in the music, and one of the guys um, from Black Flag had a copy of the Nervous Breakdown EP, and we put it on the turntable and played it, and the people just kind of step back like what is this and then once the music was done they looked at us and said you guys didn't make that <laughs> and the, 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 this was a very pivotal and um, important turning point for us because the people in the room were people like Fast Freddy uh, Don Waller Chris Desjardins Claude Kick Boy Bessie. And from that point on, we were all just, it was one big party. Brendan also happened to be there. I had a, uh, not a run in, but a, like a friendly thing happened with him up in San Francisco. He had um, traveled up there to play with Geza X and the Mommy Men. And Black Flag was playing with them. This was at the Mabuhe Gardens. And we got there early and they did their sound check. And he was really bummed out because he had his fill of them on the ride up from <laughs> Hollywood. And wanted to get away from them. And Chuck Dukowski said, look, I'm going to drive around. Let's go get something to eat. We've got to find a place to park. We've already unloaded our equipment. Let's go. Brendan said, can I come along with you? And Brendan and I are sitting in the back of the van. And at one point, Brendan looks at me and he said, you guys are my favorite band. You guys are my favorite punk rock band. You're the best band in Los Angeles. And I was taken aback because he'd been responsible for the clubhouse where all of the great Hollywood bands, um, bands from Chula Vista, Dills, and 
the Zeros and the Avengers and the San Francisco band's Dead Kennedys. He'd been responsible for them having a place to come to when they came to Los Angeles. And for him to sit there and tell me that, I'm just like... Uh, I, I I don't know how to take it. I'm just normally when somebody pays you a compliment, you're like, well, thank you, thank you. That's very nice of you. <laughs> and I was just I was speechless. And that from that point on, Brendan and I became really good friends. Uh, whether it be hanging out at the club lingerie, whether it be the Variety Art Center downtown. And one night, and I'm going to blame this book not on Jim or Ben, but on Brendan. I ran into Brendan down in West L.A. at an art exhibit. And we're out on the sidewalk and we're both animated. We're just like, dude, how you doing? Where, where have you been? What's going on? And this goes on for about 15 minutes and you know, then I start saying, well, I started to write some stories. And he said, well, you need to do that. You need to write a book. I'm going to help you get a book deal. And he said, give me a call. Call me in, call me in a few days. And I called him and he said, uh, why don't you give me a call on Monday? This was on a Thursday. He was leaving uh, Friday night, that Friday night up in Santa Barbara. He fell out of his chair. And he'd suffered a massive stroke. And Monday morning, they pulled the life support. And I, being the asshole that I am, the first thought that crossed my mind was, well, there goes my book, which is not, that's not the right thing to be thinking when you lose a friend, a really good friend like that. And it dawned on me a couple of hours later that it's not about the book. It's about losing a, a really good friend. Yeah, actually, the first time that you and I met Keith was in uh, 2002. I run a reading series here in L.A. called Vermin on the Mount, and I've been doing that for 12 years. And I think what gave me the confidence to do that was this show that I put on at Track 16 Gallery in Santa Monica, and it was on the 25th anniversary of the dam's arrival in L.A. in, in the spring of 1977, the first L.A. punk band to play, sorry, first English punk band to play in L.A. And there was a whole bunch of people uh, who came down to do some amazing things. And uh, Brandon and Keith uh, read from We Got the Neutron Bomb. And the, the way that it happened was Brandon looked at me and he said, we're just going to read down the pages... And if you don't know, We Got the Neutron Bomb is an oral history, so it's, a, it's many voices. It's a great book. You should pick it up. So I got to be Alice Bag, <laughs> Mike Watt. I think Brendan tried to pull off his best Darby Crash, maybe a Pat Smear or a Don Bowles. Uh, I think I got to be Lorna Doom. That, that, that covers all of the germs. Um, uh, maybe Xene, I got to, or John Doe. But the, the way that it reads is it's just a quote from each one of these people. All of these different players, all of these different 
people from all of these different bands. And, and it tells the, the whole story that way. But uh, I had the great fortune to interview Brendan. Uh, it was just going to be a short interview, but he was such a generous, gregarious guy that he talked to me for like an hour and a half, two hours. And um, the interview's still up somewhere online if you wanted to check it out. But it was a, a total education on what the early L.A. punk rock scene was. He, Super generous guy, so he's kind of the, uh, um, you know, the the spirit behind this book. Another person that uh, you're going to encounter over and over again in the pages of My Damaged is Jeffrey Lee Pierce, um, and uh, your your friendship with Jeffrey goes back to I think Chinatown, right? You well, we where? were cigarette bros and beer bros, and take a bump of this and take a little bap of that and his, his thing was that he really loved the South Bay bands which would be the last he, he actually at one point um, sang with them I read it in the Jungle Book uh, he was a, also a big fan of the Alley Cats he loved Black Flag he loved Red Cross he loved the Circle Jerks I, I don't know what else to say. There's a um, yeah. Maybe we shouldn't say too much because there are some great stories that came out of when uh, he was briefly your roommate uh, down in um, Inglewood, uh, Inglewood, in Imperial Village. Is that what it was? Imperial. Village. Well, we, we had this um, amazing party take place. I want to say at Verbon Day, one of the one of the inner city high schools every year would do this big bash. And all of a sudden, we're at this high school in the gymnasium, and Clifton Chenier is playing. Now, there's no room for accordion in rock music, but when Clifton Chenier plays the accordion, he means business, and that, that actually counts. So here we are at this party, uh, the, the, the Alvin brothers and... Buster Bateman, all of the guys from the Blasters, all of the guys from the Flesh Eaters, John and Exine. Um, there's just this whole group of white people in this room <laughs> down in central L.A. And it was pretty amazing. I mean, they had this drink they served. They called it the Bucket. It's all ice and... Cuddy Sark, I think, was the what they dumped on it. Like half a bottle of Cuddy Sark, you know, for like three bucks. That's like the best drink deal, drink special you're ever going to get anywhere. So the party spilled back over to the pink house in Inglewood. And I was very fortunate at the time because the people that l surrounded me in the neighborhood were all like middle class uh, African American like a police officer and a uh, mailman, mel people like that. And they were just, they were excited that there was all of this commotion and, you know, uh, the gang thing would only start a couple of years later. So... Um, and your grandparents uh, lived down the street. So yeah, my grandparents lived down the street. So you grew up in that environment. Um, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, is, you also wrote a song about Jeffrey Lee Pierce for Off. And it's uh, one of my favorite Off songs, actually. It's a really 
pretty unforgettable. Now, the book officially comes out on the 30th, but it already has some critics. So, one of them, in a review, complained... Yay or nay? <laughs> it, was, it was yay, but they were disappointed that the book doesn't talk about your dreadlocks. <laughs> and, I, and we talked about this because I, I was like, well, yeah, I never asked you about your dreadlocks. <laughs> so I thought, I thought I'd ask you now. What's up with the dreads, Keith? Um, well, um, I was recently accosted by six young guys on the street in Germany who wanted to pummel me because I didn't have a lighter. I didn't have a cigarette lighter. <laughs> They're like, how can you have those and, and uh, not have a lighter? Uh, recently, I was um, asked where the where, where's the good pot, man? <laughs> you know, it's like people look at me and assume that not only do I have rolling papers, You're but I'm, I'm, I'm dealing pot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's always about the lighter, the bic. But you don't. That's how you keep your, your youthful appearance. Well, I'm just lazy. <laughs> just a lazy white guy. All right. So um, Not feeling iry, no. <laughs> Not even close. Okay, so um, one of the things that maybe you picked up on just from all the different bands that Keith has brought up in this short time together is I would, in the stories that he would tell me and he would write down, I, was con I had to do a lot of homework. I'd listen to bands like, I, I had no idea who Vocal Harem was, for example, and other bands I'd heard about, but I'd never listened to. So um, it's, reading the book is kind of like, will either be a walk down memory lane or give you some kind of education. But, but Keith is, despite um, always needs 40 years on every side of music you can imagine from being an outsider band trying to get noticed from playing on big stages to even working at a major label you still have like a real passion for what's new and what's coming out and what people are doing with music uh, I went through a period where um, I could not listen to another punk rock band <laughs> And um, that lasted maybe six months. And um, I decided that that's pretty narrow-minded. I mean, it, with, with all music, there'll always be, and this was explained to me by David Anderley, who, uh, RIP, uh, was the, one of the main guys in charge of A&M Records. Uh, when the Circle Jerks, signed with faulty products, David Anderley was going to produce our record. And it was like, wow, this doesn't happen every day. You know, this is the guy, it's like Herb Albert and Jerry Moss and David Anderley, the third guy in the thread there. And he said that you have this you know, it's like the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. The best stuff is on the tip of the iceberg, even though you don't know what's at the bottom. But it's um, the best always rises to the top. And I looked at that and I said, 
you know, I'm being bombarded by all of these really mediocre bands, and there's a ton of them. And I'm not going to start naming any of them. You can go out and you can discover them for yourselves. <laughs> but the, the, the situation with me not listening to punk rock was I was just, I was burned out. And <clears throat> I very rarely get burned out. Um, but one of my things is that I've always been open-minded when it comes to music. So now I'm listening to jazz. I mean, I still couldn't tell you John Coltrane from Ornette Coleman, but I, I'm listening to it and I'm making an attempt to go to that part of the world. You know, and I guess that would be my dad coming out in me. I'm, I don't want to be like my parents. <laughs> Fuck that shit. <laughs> and I'm understanding that there, there are other great things out there, you know, other great forms of music. So um, how about we open up the, to some questions from the audience? Uh, do you have any questions about my damage or uh, for Keith? Yes, in the back. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, first, did you and your dad bond on the jazz thing? Um, my dad passed away before I could say return to forever <laughs> or the Mahavishnu Orchestra no and he actually um, appreciated that kind of music well yeah the, the, his shop is right across the street from uh, the lighthouse well my dad had a store down on Pier Avenue in Hermosa Beach uh, that I started working at when I was eight years old and Right directly across the street was Howard Rumsey's Lighthouse, which is uh, for the West Coast. If, if you're a tra traveling jazz musician or you're any kind of a jazz musician, you would have ended up playing there. And my dad's favorite story was that he bugged Elvin Jones, who is, when, when we you talk about in that musical world, you're talking about the guy that's possibly the greatest jazz drummer. I mean, there's there's a bunch of them, but Elvin Jones is uh, he's way up there. And my old man bugged him to the point where he said, "Sit on my kit, kid. Sit on my kit." That was that was my dad's favorite story. And I I wasn't having any of that. It's like Elvin who? <laughs> the questionnaire. Yeah, to knowing your writing and knowing your voice. And then today while I was waiting, reading, you know, ten or so pages of the book, hearing and hearing Keith talk, hearing his voice in the book, how did you guys kind of blend that and create this this autobiography? Well, I told him it's all about me and it has nothing to do with any of his writing. <laughs> True. <laughs> I cracked the whip. That, that's the way it should be, you know. Like when you're co-authoring a book with someone telling their story, like the you know my voice is should be invisible. It's coming through. And on that note, but we do have some of my books for sale. <laughs> yes. I have just one opinion. 
Black Flag has kind of turned into a, this idea that, you know, not only were they just making crazy music at the time, but they've kind of evolved into, wow, they're like, they did something that's artistic. You know, it's almost like across the realm of, into the art world. What's your opinion, especially using someone like Andy Pettibone that kind of moved you guys and started his career and kind of how you guys managed to process to music and art and kind of where you guys both kind of ended up? What's your idea with the whole art world? How do you feel? Well, to start with, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, Raymond knew what he was doing. <laughs> And we can blame Raymond for the four bars and the name Black Flag. And we just went through this lawsuit where things got really ugly, things got expensive, and I really, um, I can't say enough great things about Raymond. I just, I can't. I, I, I don't even know where to start. Uh, as for the music and the art, um, sometimes when you're when you're doing it, when you're making it, you're not realizing what you're doing. Um, well, how do you feel about being an innovator? How do you feel about creating a genre of music? It's like I don't know. How am I supposed to feel? We didn't know what we were doing. We were just doing it. We didn't know any better. As for the artistic thing, um, if, if you want to call it art, great. If you don't want to call it art, if you want to call it noise, great. Um, call it whatever you want to call it. I, I can't um, get into any kind of thing about, well, it's this or it's that, or intellectually on a mental level um, it's this and uh, we were trying to do that it was like we weren't trying to do anything but just make noise we were just we were like angry and frustrated and depressed and, and all of the stuff was taking place and people didn't like us and all the people in our community wanted to kill us and the police wanted to run us out of town and it's like we're just running we're just we're trying to have a good time um, we're hanging with our friends. Uh, we have the opportunity to play occasionally. You know, just take advantage of all of it and just go with it. But I can't say enough great things about Raymond. And uh, Raymond did the cover of, uh, of My Damage. So everyone will get to take a piece of Raymond Pettibone home tonight. Yes. The question was, can you talk about Repo Man, the best movie ever made? No. Um, I thought he was directing that question to you. <laughs> Another one of these take advantages of a situation that's presented to you an opportunity. Um, in this world, if there's an opportunity... You, you look at it and you go, yeah, let's do this. What do we have to lose? If we don't do it, some other group of schlubs will take advantage of it and you know what, go with it wherever it goes. We uh, were invited by Alex Cox because he loved the band. It, it wasn't some uh, music coordinator or 
somebody in the background that was putting together a soundtrack. He actually had come to some of our shows. And um, our situation was that we were uh, invited to be there at 10 a.m. in the morning to be suited for our tuxedos. And we are suited for these custom tuxedos and told that, oh no, you, you, you can't take them off. And uh, of course it's the middle of summer. It's about 95 degrees out. And the um, trailer, the room in the trailer, uh, happened to be the one where the air conditioning wasn't working. <laughs> now we were promised um, a couple of cases of beer because there was no money, we weren't going to get paid. So it's like, well, hey, you know, we can be in a movie for a couple of cases of beer. <laughs> uh, but at breakfast time, we were demanding beer, and it was, oh, no, you can't give these guys beer. We were hung over from the night before, um, hanging out with the Coke dealer. <clears throat> so we're trapped in these suits until about... I think it was like 2, 2.30 in the morning. And we just wanted to do it and get out of there and maybe go back over to the Coke dealer's house and get, our, get grab our couple of cases of beer. Um, the, the movie did for us the same thing that the decline of Western civilization did for us. See, we're in a period where there's no internet. If you want to talk to somebody, you talk to them on the phone. Or you write a letter and you mail them a letter or a postcard. And all of a sudden, here are these films that are be being presented in other places in the world. And people get to see, well, that's what it's like in Los Angeles? Oh, well, when is Los Angeles coming here? Um, the the, the great thing for the decline, um, we were offered a tour on the East Coast just out of the blue, you know, after the film hit the East Coast. And we ended up uh, meeting people like uh, Harley Flanagan, who would later, he was, a, he was the 12-year-old drummer or the 11-year-old drummer in The Stimulators. Uh, who would later go on to start a band called the Cro-Mags. We would meet all the guys from Minor Threat. We would meet all of the Necros. Uh, it was actually a really great experience, except for the about two or three nights before we were supposed to leave, our drummer decided to um, get in a fight with a guy who had stole his girlfriend's Volkswagen. And he breaks all of his knuckles on one hand and a couple of knuckles on his other hand and oh, I can't play drums and we're like well we're gonna go <laughs> and our, our friend Charlo from the plugs volunteered uh, we rehearsed once and off we went and it was it was a great experience as for Repo Man um, same thing, only looking at the way we perform in the movie, we're, we're not showing up to, um, 
entertain moms and dads. We're um, there's a really um, great story about that particular song and that particular lineup of the band. And one of the guys is right here. Let us introduce Mark Earl Liberty Vidal. No, we, um, we were presented the opportunity to record. We recorded one song. We have one of the greatest, one of the greatest rock drummers of all time, a guy named Chuck Biscuits. And he ends up playing acoustic guitar to a... Uh, Hema, uh, one of the guys would call it the Hemafachi machine that goes so he doesn't even play drums on the track if it's been a while since you've seen Repo Man uh, the Circle Jerks are the lounge band in a, in a bar scene that's not really a show there's no punk involved it's kind of like take a song and turn it into a lounge act when the, when the shit hits it's the it's the future of punk <laughs> right you were, yeah you were doing acoustic mm-hmm. folk punk like 20 years or 30, 40 years earlier so um, it's that scene that we're talking about and so the lineup was Earl, Chuck, Greg, and myself. And it's the only song recorded, right, in that lineup. Yes. I mean, there's some videos of you guys playing, but that's you never did a record with that lineup. Sad. Tragic. I'm going to go upstairs and slit my wrists. <laughs> Any more questions? One more, how about? One more? Okay. Better be good. No pressure. One more in the back. Yeah. No, but I'm just interested in the text. Like, I don't know how you wrote it, but um, you have one of those voices that you recognize in my speech. So I'm just wondering how that, like, to translate that into text. But I don't know how you went about it, but if there were, like, struggles or so um, I couldn't hear all of it, but like the the st- uh, saying the writing style. Yeah, I mean, just just talks in a specific way to recognize and how to get that. Well, it's like for a while I lived down in the South Bay. I lived in Manhattan Beach, and I lived in Playa del Rey, which maybe doesn't count, but I knew plenty of like wasted burnouts down there so I kind of like yeah I kind of had a template for for the voice well um, you're asking how he was able to get my voice onto the page And uh, a lot of people that know me, that have read the book, because we did give out some advanced copies, said that Jim did an amazing job in capturing that. Now, I don't know. uh, This would be the reason why I wasn't allowed to write the book. (laughs) But you did write quite a bit. Well, I had written um, several stories that I presented at the very beginning. And Jim read some of them and pulled pieces. Um, There's 
my thing is that I'll talk in circles. <laughs> and he didn't allow that to happen. He trimmed the fat. See, um, I'm in a band called The Off right now, and our one of our favorite things is that we just get right to it and skip all of the BS, and there's not going to be a long intro. There will be no two-minute guitar solo. <clears throat> Trim the fat, get in, and get out. And that, that's the approach that we took. We wanted the chapters to be short, like a hardcore song. I mean, you don't want 35 pages of Keith's boyhood, you know, to start the... I mean, that's just not... Well, I was born. <laughs> it's just not what you would expect or what you would want. And, maybe, you know, so we wanted to keep it truer to... And like, if you did want that, you're not going to get it. No. Well, I guess that's a, that could be our final question. Uh, is there going to be a sequel, Keith? Well, I could tell the story about... Um, being trapped on the back of a motorcycle in New Orleans and ending up in the uh, the suite um, completely naked with a used condom in a room full of guys who have watched whatever happened with this biker chick. I could tell that story. That That could be the first story. Amazing. I feel I feel damaged already. Uh, thank you guys very much. You've been an awesome audience. I, I would like to say two things. I want to uh, thank uh, my wife and my daughter Annie, uh, who were, you know, gave me a lot of support and had to listen to a lot of punk rock through this. And my daughter, who is learning, who plays the flute and the uh, trumpet does not like punk rock. And she um, actually inquired as to uh, what episodes of the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles I, I do a voice where I fight Raphael. Yeah, Roth. Yeah, if you're a fan of... Uh if you're a fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you'll hear Keith's voice come out of, uh, what's, what do you put, Reptilius? I'm Reptilicus, yes. Reptilicus. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, yeah. That's, I can see yeah. why they cast you. But, and we become friends. I become friends with Raphael. But I also wanted to thank you, Keith. I had a lot of respect for you when we started this project, and I have... And now you have less. Okay, I understand. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm yeah. not going to be offended or hurt in the yeah. least bit. Keith's joking around, but I have an enormous amount of respect for Keith's integrity and his work ethic. And when we started this project, he was committed from day one, never wavered. And I think it really shows in the book. It's just uh, really committed from page one to the last. And uh, uh, we're, we're both really proud of it and hope you enjoy it. And we, we want to apologize to Ben. I want, no, not we, but I, for um, blowing the deal about Wayne Kramer. <laughs> Be prepared. Thank you. So uh, everybody buy at least two copies. <laughs> Because you're going to want to send one to your friend. Yeah, you're going like, to want one for your left hand and one for your right hand. Okay. And then we'll sign some books for you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.